Hello, Joel here. I've got a new book out. It's called Be Funny or Die. How comedy works and why it matters. And it's about how comedy works and why it matters. Why human beings tell jokes and then what that tells us about being human beings. So if you're a human being and you enjoy laughing and then want to know what the hell's going on with that, it's probably a pretty good book to read. It's called Be Funny or Die. It's in shops. You can buy it. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Cheese and pickle. Hello, this is Comfort Blanket and I'm Joel Morris. I'm going to be talking to someone who makes cool stuff that I like. I'm going to talk to them about some warm stuff that they like. A book or a TV show or a record or a film that they find comforting and they return to again and again whenever they need to feel better. Um, we'll have a natter about it and see if we can work out just what is so magical about it and what makes them want to keep going back to it. This time I'm talking to the writer Will McLean. Will is the author of a very successful ghost novel, The Apparition Phase, and is also the person I know who knows the most about old ghost books and ghost stories. And he has chosen something I love as well, the BBC Ghost Stories for Christmas of Lawrence gordon Clark. What brought you here? I was... Drawn here. Drawn? Yes. You join us in a book-lined room... Uh, where two dusty academics are going to discuss the ghost stories of Lawrence Gordon Clark and try and not be killed by a shadowy spectre. That's the plan. Welcome to Halloween. <laughs> hey! <laughs> but yes, uh, you, you, you suggested doing the BBC Ghost Story for Christmas, but specifically Lawrence Gordon Clark's ones. Yes. Which is yes. the golden run. Yeah, it really is. Creepy actually. stories. And uh, yeah, so we, just, we won't be doing. Uh, the much-beloved uh, Whistle and I'll Come to You. Jonathan Miller's one. Jonathan Miller's one, with Michael Hordern playing a crusty academic. Haunted by his sheets. <laughs> yes. Uh, Haunted um, by his crusty sheets. We won't <laughs> be doing The Ice House, which is the mad one that runs in 78 or 79, I think. And um, we won't be doing any of the modern ones. These are strictly the uh, folk memory ones of childhood. The golden years yes. of this. Yeah, and it's a thing that there's been a lot of welcome reappraisal for. They were very popular at the time, to the extent that they kept making them and they're very of their time and a classic bit of British telly uh, and they get attention BFI likes them and things I remember them because they were sort of a thing that was talked about for a while and not available yes and then suddenly and joyously and I've got a personal attachment to this they brought them out as a lovely deluxe 
DVD box set, I think two days after I managed to get the last one for my collection from some archivist. <laughs> so I collected them for years. Thus making your labours pointless. It was, it was a brilliant moment. I spent, I started, with the, I had them on VHS, a ninth generation copy from someone. Then finally, sort of, managed to, oh, swapped with people. And I, when I finally got the last one, that was when everyone went, hey, these are really classic bits of television. We'll release it as a DVD box set. HMV, <laughs> I've got 200 of them. Yeah, something had been given away on the front of the Daily Mail. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, they are... For a while, they were sort of... They again, were rare. That, they, they were, were rare. And again, mm. that appealed to the kind of thing they're about, dusty academics looking for rare things. Mm. Collecting them was quite a, a big deal for a while. Yes. So um, I heard about these when I was a kid, and I, like you say, I only got to see them when I was a teenager, I think. And I loved them immediately, even or perhaps because of their glacial pace. Yeah. Each one is very, very slow, certainly to begin with. Yeah. I've been re-watching them this week, and uh, I've dropped off in front of them several times because they're just extremely restful to begin with. The matter began, as far as I'm concerned, in the November of 1932, when I was cataloguing the library of Barchester Cathedral. What I love about them is I don't think there's anything else like them. And I include other attempts to do M.R. James ghost stories for TV. They are totally themselves. Yes. In a way that, if you like horror, and I know you're a big horror fan and a horror writer and things. Indeed. You watch a lot of horror, and a lot of it is really good, but a lot of it is the same as other horror. Can I just say that? I just said indeed there, like I was Garth Marenghi. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing that again. You're a horror writer. Indeed. indeed. <laughs> oh, I prefer Dreamweaver. <laughs> I'm wearing an enormous leather jacket. Huge glasses. And reactor light shades. shades. <laughs> um, we should do this in character. One uh, of us is a fusty Victorian gimmick, <laughs> and one of us is James one Herbert. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I'd like that. I'd but enjoy it, that. But they're not like anything. So basically, when you watch a hammer, it's like a hammer. When you watch a, 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 a slasher movie, it's like a slasher movie. You watch... Uh, a folk horror, it's like a folk horror. Weirdly, because these are for TV and they're made in a very specific way, they're only like themselves. Must make a change from the uh, daily grind, sir. Yes, I suppose it does. They're intimate in a way that um, a lot of horror isn't. A lot of yeah. horror is quite a thrill ride and it's quite a roller coaster. But Lawrence Gordon Clark really understands how to tell a ghost story just as well as M.R. James does. So you have these fireside tales where you sit down and you're slowly, your consciousness is woven into the story very, very slowly from the beginning. And that makes them stronger, I think. And it makes the horror much more shocking when it arrives. Yeah, I mean, the, what they are is incredibly tasteful. Um, when, the, when there is horror, it is very rarely out-and-out out horror. It's suggested, it's shadows, it's shapes. And they are obviously, let's be honest, they are influenced by and an attempt to redo the Jonathan Miller O-Whistle and I'll Come to You. But the big difference, I think, is that a whistle I'll come to you is by a man who wants to do something quite avant-garde and about uh, psychology and almost like Freudian and to deconstruct the ghost story and say, it's just about a man going mad. It's just about a man losing his rationality, a thing that Jonathan Miller, an academic, would be frightened of. Mm. And he kind of wants to take the piss out of M.R. James. Yeah, there's, there's there's that in there, definitely. And there's and there's a, definitely a Freudian reading of that. If you've seen that story at the end, it ends with Michael Horden crying like a child, like sucking his thumb, literally reduced to the level of a child. All his rationality has gone out of the window because he's witnessed something that he cannot understand or compartmentalise. And uh, it's great. I mean, that's fantastic. But um, it's doing something slightly different to what M.R. James intended. Yes. Uh, which is, you know, it's fine. There's a place for that. But uh, I think Lawrence Gordon-Clark just went, 
let's just do ghost stories. Let's just do straight up. What's scary about this? What's interesting? And the ghost stories, we always talk about this, but the ghost story is a different discipline to perhaps any other story in that it's got to unsettle. And that's a yeah. really rare thing to pull off, I think. There's a difference between, you say this a lot, the difference between horror and the uncanny. Mm. And these are in the key of the uncanny rather than horror. They are about feeling ill at ease and they are achieved by Lawrence Gordon Clark has completely absorbed how M.R. James works they are the majority of these are M.R. James adaptations and he's absorbed how it works and then he's transferred it fairly seamlessly to TV a very different medium than a far side ghost story or a book and it's somehow because they are the length they are which is about half an hour to 40 minutes yeah always. so they don't have to be as long as a film they don't have to have a big complicated plot they are tiny short stories and the sustained threat and unease that runs over the 30 to 40 minutes is unlike any other horror watching experience I've ever had. Crudely scored under great pressure. The wood being too old and hard to have been so incised by the hand of a living child. And I'd argue this was central to why they are comforting. I mean, if we're going back to the comfort blanket thesis, which is yes. the, the point of this, is that I will regularly put these on, not to relax, because they're not relaxing, even though they are quite soporific in their own way to begin with, but they represent a world that you can enter, which is always important. Yeah. They have that. This is the time where the BBC could turn out a world-class costume drama on the turn of a sixpence. They could do that standing on their head. But Lawrence gordon Clark steered it into this way that they could do, take that and then do something else with it. And I think that combination of things really worked. The screams of the injured and dying echo in a most persistent way. It's the shape of the tunnel, you see, sir. It's a function of the way they're made. And they're made initially on a very low budget and they're a costume drama on a low budget. And because they're a costume drama on a low budget, lots of things have been done to save money and to make it work. And one of those is they've usually got a very small cast. It's usually one fusty, great actor playing It's usually, it's usually Clive Swift. Yeah, Clive Swift is yeah. looking for what went wrong to another mate of his, Robert Hardy or Peter Vaughan or yeah. someone <laughs> who went mental looking mm. for ghosts. They've usually got a small cast, which brilliantly gives them a sense of loneliness and space. They, they, you put your single figure or your two figures in these huge spaces. And the other thing is they're filmed on film. They're all on 16 mil. So they don't look like a play for today. No, they don't look cheap. And it means you can watch them today. They don't have that thing of looking like, and I've got their great fondness for it. They don't look like Doctor Who. Mm. They don't look like uh, I, Claudius. They don't look even like a Dennis Potter play from the period. They're done on film. And because they're done on film, they feel like, oh, this is a 1970s folk horror film. Or this is, it feels like a bit like Blood on Satan's Claw or something. Mm. I could keep watching this. This is the kind of thing that could be studied in film school. <laughs> it doesn't feel dated at all. I, there are no barriers to my entry. I don't feel any, the, there's not a stilted acting style. All the things that make studio drama feel like part of the past and not a thing you might put on for comfort now, mm. uh, unless you are a fan of studio drama. These feel like putting on Rosemary's Baby or a, a, like a great horror film that you might enjoy. Yeah, I think that's central to their appeal. They've got a, timeless quality which is a very very often a thing people trot out about something when they can't think of anything else to say about it <laughs> but these genuinely do because they don't they're from the 70s there's very little of the 70s in them all the hairstyles are period accurate it's that thing that um joe 
Pantoliano says in The Sopranos that, you know, when he watches Spartacus and Kirk Douglas has got 1950s hair, yeah, yeah. Or early 60s hair, there's none of that in this. They've all they've all got sort of the proper whiskers. and the proper, there, was, there was an obsession with that. The 70s had this thing where, obviously, because the present day was so awful, there was a real retreat back into sort of uh, Laura Ashley and, and sort of uh, flambards, which obviously Lawrence Gordon-Clark went on to make. This sort of thing like 1920s set TV dramas and things. But they would have 60s hair. Mm. Like when you watch the adaptations of The Great Gatsby and things, it was an obsession with the jazz age, with the Edwardian, the Victorian... But everyone also looks 60s in it. Yeah. But in these, they look properly Victorian. They're good, solid BBC period dramas that look like a Dickens adaptation, which one of them is. They feel authentically lost in time. We must look to our rational faculties for an explanation. If we abandon reason... When you talk about an M.R. James ghost story, maybe we should explain what who M.R. James is and then also what these, the stories that were chosen to adapt, that they have things in common. There are mm. sort of common themes. It's not about someone who's being stalked by a guy with a big knife. Yeah. It's not that sort of horror. It's about usually someone who is investigating something. The second one they ever made was an adaptation called A Warning to the Curious, and that could be a subtitle for the entire series. <laughs> yes. And they're all based on that. If you go digging around, poking your nose in where it's not wanted and you're a bit sort of repressed and stuffy and, oh, I, I couldn't possibly see a ghost, then there will be vengeance. And the vengeance in these things will is absolute, total, and grotesquely unfair. Yeah, always. That's one of the central tenets of it, actually. There's, <laughs> there's very few people in M.R. James who get what's coming to them. They usually don't deserve the fate they, they <laughs> happen to them. Ever since I've touched this thing, I've never been alone. We should explain who M.R. James is for the benefit of anyone who's strayed into this podcast by accident, <laughs> not knowing who M.R. James is. M.R. James was a Victorian and Edwardian ghost story writer. That's primarily what he's remembered for now. But he was uh, he was provost at Eton, which we've just had to go and have a debate off the mic about what a provost was. No idea. And neither of us know. Uh, and then he was uh, at King's College, Cambridge, I believe, from the memory and then uh, and it was there in both of those locations that he became known for writing and reading out ghost stories so he'd write ghost stories and he'd read them out for the entertainment of people round a fire usually at Christmas you've, you've come in cosy yeah and and you've closed all the curtains and the drapes and the, the shutters against the, the cold outside and this is a time where you want to chill people mm. but in a controlled way and they're redolent of that that time of like you know wood panelled rooms and they they ring all those bells which is fantastic and there's a fire crackling away and then somebody tells you a ghost story I mean it's perfect really it would have been snowing outside and all of that and it also one it taps into the that's the oldest kind of storytelling there is round the fire but it also taps into Christmas Eve being much like Christmas Eve's hands down the scariest night of the year I yeah. think it's not Halloween because Halloween is a big old theme park Halloween's yeah. got more in common with horror it's a roller coaster ride whereas Christmas Eve is the dead of night and everyone goes to bed early and if you're still up you feel alone yeah it's midwinter you feel alone oh you're told as a child that if you stay awake yeah. on Christmas Eve there's danger yeah absolutely you won't get any presents for a start no well yeah or you'll you'll mess up some kind of ritual that you don't know yeah there's, there's a supernatural <laughs> ritual going on Mm. which kind of magical man comes to visit. It is a weird time. And it is a time for the, the, the thing that's said about uh, about Halloween. It's the idea that where there are these points in the year where traditionally in mythology, the membrane is permeable. Mm. So, And that's, that's the time when you are feeling ill at ease because the whole point about closing your curtains and your door is that the membrane is not permeable. You are safe in your cave. Yes. You have made yourself secure and you've pulled a blanket around yourself and you're safe. And the, the thing that 
is true of all the MR James stories is that when someone thinks they are safe and they can be wrapped in a blanket of anything, either of comfort, of a home, of a house, or their own certainty, mm. their own sanity, their own rationality. Which is very important. That is when something breaks in. And that thing that breaks in, it might do you physical damage. Very often they do do physical harm, but it might just make you go mad. Uh, what's the matter? I don't know. Uh, some Something seemed to come at me. Well, there's nothing there now. Here, come this way. And this is one of the things I like most about M.R. James. I think it's why he's endured as long as he has, because he resists generally sort of grand guignol or doing melodramatic things to his to his protagonist. They often are just changed by what's happened yeah. to them in some subtle uh, and, and understated way. Parkins, who's the protagonist of Whistler, I'll come to you. He's just, he will never quite be the same again after what he's endured. And I think that's much more, it feels more realistic. Um, it's about trauma. I mean, we talked about this, Julian, when we were talking about Dead of Night and about wartime trauma. There's a brilliant thing, the, the Signal Launch, the Dickens adaptation that's in this run of Lawrence Gordon Clark's, is based on, it's a, it's a railway ghost, it's based on a railway accident. It's, um, as someone said, it's, it's basically the Victorian version of Poltergeist. It's using modern technology to be scary. Something's, the communications network is now spreading ghosts. Yes, the and steam it's, train it's, 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 and the it, telegram. It's the web ghost. It's, it's yeah. Black Mirror, basically. Yeah. It's about where modern technology has got evil or darkness or, or something wrong with it, sinister with it. But the, the signal was written by Dickens quite near the end of his life, about five years before he died, after he'd been in a railway accident. And um, Dickens had suffered a railway accident and been enormously traumatised by it. And apparently, when Dickens recovered after the railway accident he was in, his voice had changed. He couldn't speak properly. And obviously Dickens is someone who uses his voice a lot. And he suddenly said, I, I, it's like I picked up someone else's voice in the accident. See, that's brilliant. And it's Already. really creepy. Mm. So this is something that really happened to someone. So a trauma has happened and they have been affected by it. And this appears to be a really common theme in these things, which is that you are aware, whether you see it or not, that after this event, these people will never be the same again. Whose voice did he pick up? It- I think it was Joe Pasquale. Right. <laughs> I have my money on Bobcat Goldthwait. But they were- <laughs> it made the public readings very difficult afterwards. We should do the chronological order, yes, is what we should a- do. We should start with, let's start at the very beginning, and we should start with, uh, he's given a tiny amount of money, Lawrence yeah, Gordon Clark. Probably two shillings at the time. And he's sent away with a small budget and Clive Swift and Robert Hardy to go up to Norwich and make The Stalls of Barchester, which is the first one of these films. Yes, not forgetting uh, Thelma Barlow as well. Of course, yes. Actually, yes. everyone in it is in either a sitcom or a soap afterwards, yes. which makes it really <laughs> weird. Yes. Not a, not an obvious choice to start with, Stalls of Barchester. It's not one of M.R. James's more sort of dynamic stories. But it's got a whiff of hammer about it. It's the one that I think that yes. I think of. It's the first one. They're finding their way. All the bits are there in The Stalls of Barchester, except that someone has done a bad thing in it. We should talk about these as... Because they're tiny capsule stories. One of the things that makes them work and it is a masterpiece of adaptation is that they have enormous clarity. Mm. You always know who's going to get it and why. There's no loops or complications in the best ones of these. The reason that you can keep watching them, even though they're quite slow and quite sort of languorous, is everything is really clear. Yeah. And in this one, I think it's the first one they do, they go, let's make it really clear. Nothing nebulous about rationality. Someone has done a murder. Yeah, this is, this is what's important about it, and this may be why he selected it, is that for the one of the few times in MR James, you've got a really unambiguous bad guy who's done yeah. a very, very bad thing. He's murdered someone, and he's murdered them because he's impatient. He wants their job. 
Um, it was like it's like Charles waiting for the Queen to die. Yes, yeah. that vibe, isn't it? <laughs> yes. There's, there's yes, a good bit of comedy yes. in it, which is they keep they keep celebrating the is it the, the dean or the whoever it is the the, the the person whose job he wants. They keep having more and more birthdays, more drinks parties for him, where there are fewer and fewer people because they keep dying <laughs> because and his peer crew keep dying and he doesn't. He so. appears to be yeah, and you wonder whether it's going to be a supernatural thing about a man who lived forever. <laughs> um, so he gets angry and angry. He can't move up in the hierarchy. Mm. He gets frustrated. Victorian ecclesiastical hierarchy. This is all the high stakes drama that, that, that people raised on the Sweeney and thing was going to want in the They're 70s. They were really, it's very relatable, on. I think. <laughs> I hardly think it fitting at a time like this, Letitia, to discuss the administrative defects of the late lamented Archdeacon. Nor can I feel it to be in anything but the worst possible taste to speculate on his possible successor. But even before you get to that, you have this framing device where Clive Swift as Dr Black, uh, who's in one other adaptation, but he's, he's Dr Black and he goes to an archive uh, which is very unpromising as an ecclesiastical archive, and there's a locked metal box which contains this story. So even the framing device is quite yeah. sedate. It takes a very long time to get to where you're going, and there's very little in the way of shocks, and even the first 15 minutes, it's just very, very slow, and the slowness is fantastic. And it's a budgetary restriction turned into an advantage. Yeah, so yeah. you've got... Because one thing Britain does have is old buildings and... Yeah and libraries and very sort of beautiful settings. And as a director, he uses those to the full. So you've got these very long libraries and corridors. There's an amazing scene later on where Robert Hardy's walking and he hears footsteps clacking behind him. And it's just, it's beautifully lit. And it's one of those floors that you find yourself on in churches in Britain where it's just uneven flagstones, that are very, you know, of great age. Yeah. And he's just walking across and it's so beautifully lit. And it's using the lack of budget to his advantage is, is kind of the signature move of these but- but the flip side of it is when you talk about 1970s drama that has low budget, very often you're talking about, um, I don't know, Doctor Who or something. Yeah. You're talking about something and you go, well, what I do is I'll push it up the hill a bit because I'm aware they haven't got the budget. I'm aware everyone's going to be wrapped in bubble wrap and mm. with whisks on their heads. Yeah. So I'll just use my imagination to, to, to get past that. But this, because of how they've spent the budget being really, really clever and unexpected, because mm. what they've got is 16 mil film and a small crew. And Lawrence Gordon-Clark is a trained documentary maker, so he's all about locations. He's all about finding stuff that's already there and filming real things. Yeah. So he's got a documentary maker's eye of going, right, we're filming in here because this is an amazing building. It's all that kind of thing. He takes advantage of it. There's a great moment in Treasure of Abbot Thomas where they add a clue in to the original M.R. James story because he was on top of a cathedral roof and saw a hidden culvert and went, right, we're writing that in. <laughs> At speechit de celis ut absconditar videt. He looks down from on high to see what is hidden. Can that be a text? It certainly sounds like one. Unfamiliar to me. <laughs> he takes advantage of what he can find in the environment. But it's all shot on 16mm, and because of that, they can light it really low light. Mm. And it can use all the techniques that were being used in cinema at the time. It feels like that beautiful sort of soft medieval lighting. You get uh, sunsets and, and mist and things that are used a lot. It's just taking advantage of the fact that film can capture this stuff in a way that if you're in a studio drama or using videotape or something it would look shit and the other thing that's worth pointing out is that is that Lawrence Gordon Clark really understands ghost stories he yeah. understands he wrote these screenplays as well yeah. until when they finally got successful enough because these were very very popular they got very very well reviewed slowly the budgets increased and it fell under the arm of Rosemary Hill who was the producer at the time when they were making astonishing supernatural drama on TV mm. there's a year in 1972 where you've got the exorcism and a woman sobbing and this and the stone taking yeah. it's just it's Mark Gates' dream year <laughs> is happening purple patch yeah. Just, uh, yeah but so it falls under Rosemary Hill's uh, ages and then under that 
suddenly other screenwriters are brought in really good ones john mm. bowen and, and clive exton and people like and andrew davis the drama department throws in some great writers but weirdly i think the first few works just lawrence gordon clark writing his own are the ones that set the tone and yeah. he's amazing at it. yeah and the template in stores of barchester is pretty much as it will remain and as it is in mr james you know and is as it is in ghost stories man does a bad thing and he is haunted and then punished for it and that sustains the whole thing because you are there's an inevitability to it doesn't trying yeah. to do anything tricksy with the narrative there's no twists or anything it just they all have this magnificent through line it's a straight line they are all different and all rewarding i love them all and, and but when you look at this run of, of lawrence gordon clark ones they're all kind of the same mm. in a lovely way that like an agatha christie is always the same or a john le carre is always the same it's an it ain't broke don't fix it approach yes where you've got something so good that what the audience wants is to be told that story again in a different way surprise me in some ways but also i want to know where we're going and the clarity the stuff that he takes out, very often the MR James will have like elaborate framing devices and flashbacks and stories within stories. And they're usually all stripped away by Lawrence mm. Gordon Clark. And he'll usually add something like a young assistant or a young cleric who follows the crusty academic around. So the exposition can be done very naturally. Yeah. There are things that are added in that are all televisual. Yeah. And they just help you follow the story in a way that is funny, actually, because I knew these before I read the MR James's. And going back to the books, I go, oh, sometimes this isn't as good. <laughs> because actually what's been added has been a love storytelling fix even that given the fact that they strip out a lot of the stuff in mr james that you know would be inessential in a tv adaptation they remain incredibly true to the spirit of those stories yes. which is about unsettling it's a it's about disturbing the viewer or the reader and making them see things in a way that they haven't previously seen them now there's an extraordinary thing i put a figure on my shawl to give it some perspective and if you look you see there's someone standing there just where I put him. You're waiting all the time for the thing out in the corner of the frame, the thing in the shadows. You're always... They're, they're hugely brilliant exercises in paradoilia. Yeah. You're always peering... To, again, because <laughs> it's all on film, you're peering into slightly underlit spaces, looking for where the shape of a monk or a little face <laughs> is going to appear, which is what fear is. Yeah. Uh, they've all got that feeling, which is captured in, in lots of really good horror movies, of wandering into a dark room with a candle and seeing shapes in the dark. The hall and the staircase seem to be unusually full of what I can only call movement without sound. The other thing that, that they've got in their template is um, they use shock very, very sparingly. Yes. We're talking about two or three seconds of pure horror in 45 minutes of television. And yeah. in stalls of Barchester, there's a couple of violent moments that light it up and there's a couple of half-seen sort of incursions of the supernatural. But they are... On screen for I don't know what uh, it's frames. I'd be surprised if it was ten seconds. And they've got in. that they've got that lovely Jaws thing of saying they can't afford to make you a monster. Yeah. And what they do because of that is they don't show you the monster, which is a hundred times better. Yes. You don't know where it's going to come. And very often the rewatch value of these, which I found after first watching them, and I first watched them on a snowy fifth generation VHS, <laughs> so I'm leaning into the blur even yeah. more. I can barely see what was there originally on TV. <laughs> but you're leaning into what would have been at the time a small telly in the corner of your room, not a big one, mm. looking for detail and the pleasure of re-watching them is waiting for those shock moments where was that a face yeah. and the second time around you watch it and go oh, there it was oh, i rewound and watched again the 12 frames of the corner of a shape in the dark yeah 
and wondered and marvelled at the efficiency and the cleverness of how upsetting it was made. If you watch them on YouTube, because YouTube has that little tracker at the bottom which shows you how often <laughs> things have, moments have been rewatched, and there's always a massive peak <laughs> at the, at the, where a face appears. But it's great. They, they all work, and they work because they're passing. What happened to the, uh, the figure in which it was concealed? Oh, yes, I forgot to tell you. The, uh, the old man told me that it, it frightened his children so much that he burnt it. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We should move on to the, the second one of these, which is one of the best regarded. The one that probably, when people talk about the classic M.R. James adaptation, they talk about, oh, whistle, I'll come to you, mm. the, the Jonathan Miller one. And the second one they always talk about is a warning to the curious. Which is a masterpiece, really. I think it's it's yeah. fair to use that word. Um, it's longer than the others. I think it's 50 minutes long, which the others aren't. More um, mist, more coastal more landscapes. More mist, and this more time... More around in <laughs> the old buildings. That's what I want. The pendulum swings the other way from the murderer, and this time you have a man who absolutely is completely blameless and doesn't deserve anything that happens to him. It's As a piece of screenwriting, it's brilliant. Yeah. Lawrence Gordon-Clark changed... The, the protagonist in this one's played by Peter Vaughan. And in the original story, he's a young man and he makes loads of clumsy mistakes. Yes. And in this one, he's so nice. Yeah. It's it's very deliberate that Peter Vaughan is the nicest man on earth. And doesn't... Grouty's lovely in yeah, this. he really is. He's not threatening, doesn't threaten flesh he's, at any point. They've moved it to the 1930s. There are glimpses of newspapers that say that unemployment is at the highest in the Depression. And he's a working man who's been made unemployed. And that's established incredibly efficiently by not only seeing that newspaper, but there's a bit where the boots at the hotel, he's the guest house he's staying in, comes in and has to polish his shoes. And he, he moves to stop him. But before he does, the boots has already got his shoes out, and his shoes have got a huge crack across one of the soles. Yeah. Down below, sir. A few days, I expect. Oh, you're letting me. Oh, there's no need. But in that second, it's almost like a Howard Hawke's moment. It just goes to show that everything about that character, he's proud, but not, like, to the point of vanity. He's clinging to respectability. He's, he's not used to someone cleaning his boots. He's not used to someone cleaning his boots. It's, it's, it's how they established John McClane in Die Hard. He's not used to being in that limousine. <laughs> he's out of, like he's it. a fish out of water in terms of like, even staying at his guest house is unsettling him. And he doesn't want this person to judge him 
on the fact that he's basically, you know, he's lost his job. It's again really deft screenwriting. I mean, I think that the thing that doesn't get appreciated, everyone sort of says these are creepy and they're beautiful and they're lovely, beautifully shot, beautifully directed. They're really well written. They're very, very well written, and they're very good about the class system. Weirdly, You've got Clive Swift as Doctor Black, who's sort of able to like a queen on a chessboard move anywhere yeah. at all. Whereas Paxton, the character played by Peter Vaughan, is just endlessly looks like he's in the wrong place. It's a nice way of, of making, again, you're making popular television out of something which is an entertainment for the elite. Yeah. And it's a really clever thing to go, right, we need an every man in the middle of this. It mustn't be a fusty academic. We want to make these people as accessible as possible. That little script twist makes all the difference in the world. And he's really good at these. He does them in a couple of others as well, where there'll be an opening scene uh, with some character establishing that's done really quickly that will make you understand who this character is, stop them just being another boilerplate M.R. James protagonist, mm. give them something to lose, something, to, something they're trying to gain. Enormous Enormous clarity of writing. And again, as we said, these are almost silent. You can fall asleep in front of them. They're so spare. Yes. One of the things I really like about it is one of my favourite horror films of all time is Dark Water, the Hideo Nakata Japanese mm. thing, which is his tribute to, I think, these ghost stories, and certainly to M.R. James. Yeah. There's a formal <laughs> Victorian spareness in Japanese horror that's in these. These feel almost hokusai, as in they're all to do with negative space. It's incredibly formal. This feels like J-horror. Yeah, I would I would argue as well that the, the, limit, the budgetary limitations, again, are used to the advantage of the story, and that yeah. they are very good at showing you very long shots of empty spaces. And a director who knows how to do that is brilliant, because it leaves you alone with your own thoughts yes. as the viewer. So you're watching the, the landscape drift, and you sort of start to worry. You start to worry where the story's going, and you worry about what you're being shown. Shown, and you start to affix your own meaning to it. There's big holes in it where you fill it with your own worries, basically. And the comparison would be with something which is very often uh, horror, especially sort of thriller horror, where it's all to do with tension, mm. is about uh, worries about relaxing that tension. Worries about leaving space. It's often there'll be lots of incidents in it. There's a wonderful, I know it's a book I recommend to everybody who wants to understand narrative, Scott McLeod's Understanding Comics, where he does an analysis of Japanese comics and American comics to talk about Japanese storytelling and American storytelling. And he looks at the what happens to one frame in the next in a, in a comic book. And he said, is it a change of action, a change of character, or, or a change of scene? What happens between one frame and the next? And he comes up with this conclusion, he said, in Japanese storytelling, very often what happens to one frame and next is it's a still image of something and a still image of something else and a still image of something else it'll be lots of scenes which you assemble into a feeling and in an American comic it's incident, 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 incident and that is how a lot of American horror films are directed what's exciting about these is they are directed in a storytelling genre that you don't see in horror very often which is stillness waiting pauses it's used a lot in in some good horror but a lot of the time environmental horror yeah. where you're just somewhere and the next shot is somewhere. It's really effective. It does help in this that the somewhere that they're in is East Anglia, which is absolutely <laughs> yeah. crucial to the success of these, I think, is that they're filmed on location. It's the other yes. big ace in the hole they've got is that they've got all of these beautiful locations. They it's can not go just to. West London either. It's not like Monty Python. No, they've been it's somewhere not. else. They've gone, they've probably gone, it's not a quarry. It's, it's <laughs> you know, they've gone and they filmed the East Anglian coastline, which is still the most, one of the most beautiful coastlines yeah. in Britain. This is MR James country. This is, this is the place where he wrote, you know, he wrote a book about the architecture of Suffolk and Norfolk. It is a fine porch, isn't it? Oh, hello. Yes, it's uh, very interesting. Mentioned in Cooper, you know. Cooper? Cooper R.L., Romances and Rolls of East Anglia. Fine publication, sadly out of print these many years. You were looking at the coat of arms. 
Yes, there's a legend attached to it, isn't there? The buried crowns that guard the realm. The reason Warren to the Curious is the pure, almost the ur one of these, is it's the simplest version of the story. There's a thing that needs to be dug up that someone wants. They dig it up, then they get in trouble. Yeah, and also Peter Vaughan is digging this thing up for it's one of the lost crowns of Anglia. Um, and so it's an Anglo-Saxon crown, which would be sort of unique. Um, and he knows it's a high-value object. Um, and he's going there for economic reasons. He's going there partly for because this thing is worth a huge amount of money, but also because, as he says... Archaeology's been my hobby for as long as I can remember. I used to dream of doing something big. To show people you didn't need a string of letters after your name to be recognised. When the job stopped, I took a chance. It's a total class thing. And the it's... motive is lovely. Mm. You completely go, yeah, you should. Don't you? Look at you being brave yeah. and resourceful. He's read up the book. He's found the thing. But we know something it. that he doesn't, because we've seen in the first few minutes of the adaptation that... The, the crown is guarded by a local man. And weirdly, for one of these adaptations... Uh, this is quite a fun one in that it's a figure. It's a human figure. And it's a person we know is. It's not a nameless phantom. Um, and it's not a nameless phantom from the 12th century or something. It's not an ancient evil. It's someone who lived here about 10 years ago, promised to protect it, and uh, they're dead, but they're still there. That's proved to be no impediment to them <laughs> guarding the treasure. We know from the beginning that he's dead. So who, who on earth could Peter Vaughan be seeing yes. out of the corner of his eye? And also beautifully shot. Occasionally you'll see someone in focus. And if someone's in focus, they're probably alive. Yeah. Because the first time you see William Agle at the beginning of the past, he's in focus. He's a human being. Mm. But they just do a brilliant thing with the long focus on a 16mm camera. If he's out of focus, he's a ghost. (laughs) It is as simple as that. If you were leaning in to peer and Mm. say, who is this? And a brilliant bit of direction as well. He's got a really distinctive silhouette. He's got a hat and a big cape. So he's he's sort of shaped like Bod. Yeah. He's sort of got a flared thing with a little sort of... A PC copper, really. Or a sort of Farmer Barley Mo. Yeah, he's got a sort of... A a Barley Mo I'm sorry, everyone who's lost now. (laughs) (laughs) We're doing 70s telly. We do all of 70s telly. Yeah, we're doing all of it. We're doing Bod. He's got a weird sort of silhouette, which means that you can mistake other people for him and you can play games with did you see him didn't you see him and it's a a thing that's used in it follows and things there's something on the horizon what is it it's made very clear as well that Peter Vaughan says it it changes shape which is a really horrible detail because we see it do that with dramatic effect towards the end when it assumes the shape of Dr Black and it's it's a really simple thing it's it's a human thing of saying sometimes when you look at the horizon or catch something from the corner of your eye you think you've seen your friend you think you see a person and it turns out to be I don't know a post box or Mm. a a, a seagull on a stick (laughs) and it's just saying sometimes you can't believe your eyes but what you're being told as a human being being told a scary tale around a fireside is sometimes not being able to tell the difference between a seagull and a stick and a threat is terribly dangerous and that evolutionarily is pretty basic stuff that's uh, nature imitating art for you, Mr. Paxson. The other great thing about it is that it shows its hand from the very beginning. It's like the first thing you see is William Agar kill an academic who's come there, <laughs> who's come there to find the crown. So you see William Agar do that, and then twelve years later, Paxton comes. Agar is dead, but Agar is still protecting this mound, and Paxton is fully aware of what's happening to him. He takes the crown. He's had enough information as we have. Nothing is kept from us as the audience. Yeah. We're treated, the clarity is absolutely incredible. It's absolutely, and we're treated with respect, and you know, as and your intelligence is treated with respect. So you, Paxton, comes to realise things at roughly the same time you do. So he knows. He knows. He said. That I, he says to Doctor Black, "This thing has it hasn't been more than two feet away from me since I found the thing." So and he shows Doctor Black the crown, which is my favourite scene in the whole thing, where the two of them are just together in the his darkened room and they're just looking at this beautiful Anglo-Saxon crown. 
And Dr. Black is incredibly impressed that this man who's, you know, with his shoes with holes in them has managed to find this treasure, which has eluded yeah. academics and professors. And then he says, well, what are you going to do with it? And, and Peter Vaughan just says, I'm going to put it back. Really simple bit of writing. Yeah. And it makes the threat so much more real that this thing that means the world to him is going straight back in the ground because it's the only way to get rid of this unforeseen consequence which has proved to be so disgusting and, and this unpleasant. Is, we can talk about this. This applies to almost all of them. The clarity of it. The effect you're trying to achieve is the uncanny. Mm. It's to make people feel ill at ease, to not know what's going on. And to achieve it, they tell you really clearly what's going on. <laughs> because they're slow and they're even yes. in place. What's amazing is you think that withholding detail would help you tell the story. Mm. That people would, oh, like a, that was a David Lynch thing. Going, the less I know, the more I'm off balance. There is total clarity in these. They've taken the stories, which can occasionally be elusive and clever, and they've stripped them down to a television drama that tells you where this man's going, what he wants, what he thinks, I'm going to put it back, really, who's after him, what they might do. Yeah. There's not a moment of it that's ambiguous. And yet, because they're told slowly, or maybe maybe the clarity is because they're being told slowly, you need to be able to watch this and know what's going on at every single second. Mm. You cannot be kept in the dark. As it were. And the great thing is you feel unsettled. And that, I think, is a mastery of television drama I don't see in many other things. Because usually everything's very expositional and very clear or very elusive and unclear, and sort of watching John le Carre or something. Mm. You're trying to peer into a murder mystery, trying to work out what's happening. Everyone tells you what they're doing in these. There's no mystery. You know who the ghost is. You know who the baddies. You know what the rules are. And this really helps. <laughs> it, it, it's another thing that ghost stories do, is that they are often inevitable. Yes. And this is really important. It's not like any other story where, you know, often sometimes there are twists in ghost stories, but it's not really a twisty genre. It's more about the inevitable. Once this thing happens to... You know, particularly Mr. Jamesian protagonist, they're a marked man. It's it's only a matter of time before the hammer falls, and it's just about the shape of that and how will they survive the encounter. But it's it's just about that. There's a brilliant um, episode of Tales of the Unexpected. No, believe me, there really is. Um, and <laughs> but Tales of the Unexpected, because of the structure of those, you're always when you watch them going, oh, he's he's actually a murderer, or yeah, yeah. Know, he's really a sheep, or whatever the, <laughs> the thing is, and and it makes it gimmicky. But there's one episode called The Landlady where you are pretty much in step with what's happening. Welcome home, dear. Home. I tell all my guests that to treat my house as home. Home from home, dear. It's about a guy who's an insurance salesman. I think it's his first job, and he's staying at a place in Bath. And the landlady's creepy from the beginning, and she's really into taxidermy. Uh, where do you think this is going? Yeah. But instead of making it like, ah, I'm, I embalm my guests... Um, they make it just inevitable, and and it makes it much more powerful for them. That's that. a brilliant point. Tells the unexpected. The thing that the, the flaw with that is that you were told at the beginning it's unexpected. You'll so you never go, guess. So you go, oh, it's a puzzle. I'll try and work it out. There's a terrific way of telling these stories, and a more effective way, a more successful way. In the fact that you've taken a million episodes of Tales of the Unexpected and picked one that you reckon works, yeah. the one where it's expected, the completely expected. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to say that the trick with horror and the uncanny and the unsettling isn't to do an M. Night Shyamalan thing and go, there's a twist at the end. Weirdly, we're trying to avoid spoilers with these in case you haven't seen them. But mm. we could tell you the plots of all of these and they'd still be worth bringing up on YouTube and watching again. And you would the still inevitability is why it's fun. And you'd still find something within them that you would mean something to you personally. And you wouldn't see coming. There'll yeah. be an element that you wouldn't see coming or a treatment that you wouldn't see coming. What's astonishing about these, they are a masterclass in saying, 
don't conceal things from the audience. Don't cheat them. Mm. Let them see everything. Yeah. And then if you're skilled enough, you can still surprise, unsettle, unease. You'd think they're being told everything up front. There's a ghost. It's going to kill him. Would be the enemy of unease. But weirdly, it helps it. It really does. Because you're shown, like I said, in that first scene of, of Warning to the Curious, you're shown the entire story. <laughs> you're <laughs> shown a man back. killing an academic. And that, later on, that man is dead. But he still manages to kill an, another treasure hunter. It doesn't keep anything from the audience at all. If, if anything, it makes a show of, of just literally displaying everything. Strangely, that gives them, makes them a cousin or something they resemble, which is public information film. Because they've got the same sort of filming style. Because they've, they've done cheaply by documentary filmmakers on portable kit. Mm. So they've got a whiff of the, the spirit of dark and lonely water and all those. I am the spirit of dark and lonely water. Don't throw your frisbee onto the onto the pylon thing. They're definitely part of the hauntology movement where people refer back to 70s horror. These, so. This aesthetic is there. Ready to trap the unwary, the show-off, the fool. And this is the kind of place you'd expect to find me. But weirdly, they are a warning to the curious. They are a warning. They say, if you do this thing within the rules of ghosts, yeah. here's what will happen. You will end up uh, electrocuted by your frisbee. <laughs> Just, they're doing that. But what do they look like it as well? Mm. They've got this inevitability and, and, and a sort of a, a momentum to them that keeps them going, which I think is why when you're sort of saying you can watch them, they're very, very slowly paced and things. They've got a thread, mm. a propulsion. When you sort of you tune out and you tune back in again, watching them with that woozy, half-asleep, dreamlike thing they've got, they do feel like nightmares. But when you tune back in, you know exactly where you are. Yeah. You tune back in and you watch, oh, he's out on the beach, he's got a spade over his shoulder, I know where he's going. The clarity and the pacing go together so that, you need enough clarity to you know where you're going, you know what the rules are. And then the pacing can be relaxed. And the, the where the unease creeps in is watching things slowly and inevitably play out. Yeah. Um, there's also, they're incredibly atmospheric. I mean, that's the other thing. The atmosphere is a, a really hard quality to pin down. But yeah. <laughs> because of how they're filmed, because they're on film, how um, beautiful they look, which is also, it, it all works in service of the story. Uh, you were talking earlier about Japanese horror films i just think about um and about comics i think about uh junji ito uh the manga writer yeah who does um and to me the most successful horror comics there are because there's the western tradition of horror which relies a lot on jump scares and yes events. and these are the complete antithesis of this junji ito's stories are about an idea often that pervades somebody um, that generally takes over their life. Lawrence Gordon Clark seems to have picked that detail out of M.R. James and made it the dominant theme of all the episodes, is that somebody is pursued, either by, often by, you know, I mean, you could read the ghost's ideas. They're often pursued yeah. by an obsession. Or it's an obsessive being pursued by another obsessive. It's an obsessive being pursued <laughs> by an obsessive. So you have, the, in, in Warning to the Curious, you have a treasure hunter who's being chased by a man whose sole purpose in life uh, even though he's dead now, was to guard this burial mound. Well, there's that great that great phrase which was used. I I can never find it now. It's, it, it's intent without mind is yeah. what a ghost is. It I can't find something. that on either. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, we've both heard it. And it just, mm. It's the most beautiful description of what a ghost is. And the thing of it, if you're writing anything, if you're writing 
comedy, drama, whatever. As a writer, the thing your audience need to know is what do these characters want? Yeah. And in a pure sense, this is almost like a, 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 a most minimalist drawing you can have. Of like, it's like a line with an arrow on the end of it. Man <laughs> wants book. Man mm. wants treasure. Man wants yeah. crown. Yeah, these are all Ghost fine. Ghost wants man. Ghost yeah. wants man. So what you do at the beginning is you say, okay, it's a bit like Roadrunner. Mm. One of them wants one thing, the other one wants the other thing, and then you watch them run around <laughs> in a beautiful a landscape. It's exactly like Roadrunner. They are exactly like Roadrunner, I but was, really slow. I was talking to Gareth Tunley <laughs> last week. Gareth is Gareth's obviously a director and a writer, and uh, we were talking that he said you never see a talkative ghost, and it was it's that thing of like if, if the the less a ghost <laughs> has to talk about, and the more you can uh, you know the more explicable their aims are, yeah. the more threatening they are. And, and in Warning to the Curious, the ghost simply wants to stop this man from taking this crown and this burial mound, but he, it, and then wants him to return it. But he will enforce these aims with a huge knife. We, we, we know that obviously the finest ghost in all of fiction is the one in the early series of Scooby-Doo, the mummy, who holds his hand out and says, Coin. Yeah. Coin. Coin. Coin? Okay, like here's a quarter. I'll bet he means that old Egyptian coin. As a kid, I, that frightened the shit out of yeah. me. Because the, what did the ghost want? Coin. Yeah. Give the ghost the coin. It's like a coin-operating ghost. <laughs> you put the coin in the slot, the mummy leaves His motive alone. is very clear. Yeah, and weirdly, these have got the simplicity of motive, which then means what you can enjoy in the rest of it isn't great curlicues of revelation and detective work, even though some of them have got that. What you're watching is an inevitable thing play out really slowly so then the atmosphere can come in and you can just be creeped out yeah and i like that the coldly inevitable element of them i'd argue makes them more enjoyable because you're 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 listening to a fable you're you're being told a story but usually about greed or avarice but with the wonderful um, thing of the wonderful extra element of enormous unfairness as in normally you're told a fable the person who's done the good thing gets rewarded <laughs> the, person the bad thing gets punished and the joy of especially this one where someone who you really like who's got every reason to be trying to prove himself unfairly gets removed and then even the people who are trying to help him get wiped out yeah. by the inevitable coming of this ghost. It will not let you go, even if it wasn't your fault. There's that weird decision as well that Dr. Black is a recurring character. He's also in the stalls of Barchester. And I think the idea was to make Clive Swift the sort of yeah. framing device for Let's each one. files type thing, where every year he investigates a yeah. new... A new- Ghost. But you can read at the end of this that he's so sickened by the whole thing that we never see him again. Yeah, <laughs> <isn't> so, <laughs> so, um, but it, it it is just a beautiful thing to watch. You know, it's sumptuous is the word. And that again, I suppose, is what's comforting about them is you can revisit them not for the story, which is inevitable and simple and thin, mm. but for the detailing, for the storytelling technique, and for a chance to go and visit somewhere coldly beautiful yeah i'd argue that the the thinness of the stories always works in their favor because it means that somebody can you know these things become metaphors for other things usually and it means that anyone who who watches it can insert their own meaning they're not busy one of the things that television very often is busy it's full of antic stuff someone especially as more and more people get involved giving notes you add more and more detail someone's can you add something in can you add something you're always trying to pull out as much detail as possible to make the story clear yeah and these especially these first few which he's he's made on his own written on his own no there's been no interference are an auteur's voice of saying this is as spare as my story can get can i just say that one of the things that i really love lawrence gordon clark for is um mr james's stories are obviously designed to be read out so there's lots of scope for funny voices in them there's usually funny working class people <laughs> in them which I sort of uh, i'm rereading dracula at the moment and it's full of that it's the same thing and hg wells does it as well they have like a funny comedy working class person and and lawrence gordon clark just puts a line through all of yeah. that so they're given as much dignity and agency and, dig- and agency as the other people and they're given their own like the boots in um, yeah. Warning to the Curious it's kind of a snob he does yeah. judge 
Paxton for the state of his shoes. It's very, you know... There's, he, there's no little turns from a comedy shopkeeper or anything. No, they're, they're very, aren't. They're very good. There yeah. aren't. And in, in James, they take you right out of the mood somewhat. These aren't without comedy. They are funny. They've, they've, they've got funny things in them and there's room in them for little bits of comic business and things. Very, very natural and very real. They're not po-faced. But... They never break the uncanny mm. by taking into sort of a little Dickensian sketch of a of a working class man with a cart. Yeah, it's really it's very very disciplined. And Talk about be easy to do. Breaking the illusion. I, I did notice this time uh, when I was watching the, the very one of the very first scenes when Paxton is talking to a vicar of a local church. Uh, you can see a transit van in the distance, uh, which I never a noticed go- before. A ghostly a transit. Ghostly transit. Transit. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't. I didn't want to. I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to break because you oh. do end up because you've seen him so many times. Well, I've seen him so many times. You end up looking. For details that you haven't seen before and I was like oh that's it isn't one of, one of the museums in uh, sort of the Barchester has got like sort of 70s typeface on yeah the, it's on the huge yeah, yeah it's, like, it's not the typeface from the goodies but it's it's, it's, it's recognisably anachronistic yeah. it's not it's but not, let, let, let's not yeah. I think as well I, I hadn't spotted either of those things and I've watched these dozens of times before uh, until this, this rewatch mm. um, so there's I a think 25 minute listen. sequence where uh, Clive Swift listens to Electric Warrior by T-Mac <laughs> Uh, which you, you 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 don't notice it the first time you, you see it because you're so scared. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they do present a unified world, and yeah. that's the other reason that that they are comforting to rewatch is because you you feel it's that thing you're you're confident that wherever they go and whatever they do, you'll be in safe hands. Which we talked about earlier with regards to Better Call Saul. It's like you the people who are writing this no, and directing not. this, they know exactly what they're doing. Because the idea of safe hands takes us to the next one in the series, which is one of the most dangerous hands ever depicted on screen. Unsafe which is, hands. Which is Lost Hearts. Lost Hearts. Which is an odd oddity within it, because it feels like it feels like the scariest children's adaptation that the BBC Children's Department ever made. Yeah, it's like Children of Green Now or something, but it's, it's gone wrong. Yeah, it's. I don't think... I mean, with these, I, I enjoy all of these, and I have had... They're comforting, but I've had restless nights after watching these. Signalman, particularly, I found very disturbing the first time I watched it. This one, I woke up with the kids from this in a nightmare. Yeah. As in, they are properly. Yeah. This is one I'm going to admit now. I didn't re watch this one for this one because I'm still scared of it. I didn't re watch it either. <laughs> I'm the scared very, of this because one. it's just a series of, of disturbing images. It's, all, it's probably M.R. James's most disturbing story. It's not nice. Uh, it's um, not nice. And the guy, we were saying that the guy in Stalls of Barchester doesn't, you know, he, he's a murderer, so he clearly deserves what's coming to him. Whereas the bad guy in this is a child murderer. Yeah. So he really deserves what's coming to him. What it is, it's, this is child ghosts. There's a little bit of uh, of the innocence and things. It's, it's got sort of that thing where you're dealing with um, children and horror. Mm. It's obviously a very dark area to go. Um, and this one is like a traditional uh, Victorian tea time children's adaptation where a kid is going to an old house. Yes. And, and it stays there. But he's haunted by two, a boy and a girl ghost who are in the house. And the more you see of them, the worse it gets. And some of that is down to budget. Yeah. And some of that is down to the fact they've got 70s theatrical makeup on. Yes. But weirdly, because of that, they're absolutely terrifying. Yeah, the eeriness <laughs> here comes from the way that they realise. They're not... These things are always like one hair away from looking ridiculous. Yeah. And initially, when you see them, they're jarring. They're not funny. They're jarring. You're like, where's this going? And then, because they stay on them for so long, yeah. they just become more and more horrible. But this one is the one that I think has got most... Co- crossover with sort of a, a this is a good gothic it's a very good gothic and and a gothic in the sense that if you enjoy things like Guerrero del Toro sort of the orphanage mm. and things like that and pa- Pan's Labyrinth and, and, and Devil's Backbone that kind of world of there are there's a fantasy world of sort of zombie weird creatures in it this belongs to that which is not like any of the other ones mm. and I think one of the reasons that this one sort of stands out is it's not a failure 
it's a complete success. Yeah, it's but a, it's in a slightly different key than the other ones. Yeah, it's a complete barnstorming success because it un- <laughs> unsettles and disturbs. We were and, too scared to watch it. Yeah, again. exactly. <laughs> it's just, and it is just a series of sort of horrible images. It's um, it's about a, a man who's basically spoilers is completing a weird occult ritual, which to grant him immortality, which involves sacrificing children the main character is a small boy he's the last person to know this <laughs> um so he just sees the results of uh, this man's labors i've forgotten all the names because i haven't gone near this since i saw it this once. is the one i think I, I took the disc out of the box and this one is, is in lead in a safe because i'm not watching it again but it, it features lots of stuff that is because that maybe i'm one of the funny things about it, you say this really scary someone might watch this and go because it's slightly theatrical and also a lot of the elements that are in this have become cliche since mm. this is the one that's got the stuff that scares you in The Shining. Yes. It's got creepy kids. It's got creepy music. Them singing nursery rhymes. There's a hurdy gurdy with playing, playing is weird always... children's music. It's got a lot of stuff that has become an absolute cliche and horror that you wouldn't be allowed to do if you were, if you were pitching a thing to Blumhouse. They'd say no, no. Um, but weirdly, <laughs> it's one of the best ones of these ever made while you were still allowed to do this. Yeah. <laughs> And they've also, uh, the children have, when he sees the apparitions of the children, they have really fake smiles. It's scary. Um, when they move as well, I'm a big fan. It's an unnatural fan. way that they move. I'm a big it? fan of, of movement training and choreography within horror. That's why Sadako's scary when she comes out of yes. the telly. Yeah. As in, if something moves a bit back to front and a bit weird and a bit jerky, we talked about it with Julia about Dead of Night with the way the dummy moves, that kind of not quite human movement. Yeah. Uh, heads to one side, staring, jerky, back to front legs, all the tricks that can be used, reversing the film in mm. David Lynch, anything that makes something feel like you're watching a dream yeah you're watching a nightmare that something isn't quite real well, what was great about um uh, stop motion animation for a while is it's uncanny yeah this is a great you example of the, uncanny direction the very existence of something has violated the fundamental laws of the universe yeah <laughs> that it's, it being there is wrong it lights up the back of your brain it's a good trick yeah you know, uh, and they use it to full effect I this, think. Is, this is a great example of that if you want if you want to go in and see a ghost story that is a classic traditional creepy christmas ghost story that will actually freak you out a bit this is the freakiest of the lot by miles yeah absolutely and it's it's full of unforgettable images i mean i i haven't seen it for a couple of years i think it's the last time i saw it and then it was yeah but that image of the children mm. just leering away with their fake smiles as they it's play just, this hurdy-gurdy and, it's just not a nice thing. it's not and the, the hooray yeah for scaring yeah, yeah. it's, it's that's the one that uh, this is one of the few ones you can cosplay i think this one this yeah, is a halloween classic well i mean you could cosplay as uh clive swift if you will <laughs> but, but yeah. uh, i don't think it'll help you much or, or it'll come as some slime but, yeah. but, but this is the one that's, that's got uh, yeah proper old fashioned uh, horror movie bits in it yes um weirdly feels different because the other ones are so much just about unease and atmosphere and not showing this one it shows it but weirdly completely plays its hand brilliantly and it is unsettling to the extent that I am still slightly scared of this one you were dreaming Stephen I wasn't the little boy he led me and the girl she was in the bath (laughs) a silly old dream exactly take him down to your room Mrs Punch give him a posit there's something about um, making children the victims which is unwholesome um, and it stinks. Yeah, it really. It's 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 unclean. It feels like you know. And it's, it does. No, I'm, yeah. I'm serious. It feels like it's it's the subject matter is so unpleasant. And it, you know, he handles it well. Yeah, um, I, it's it's interesting to show again within this thing which we've said before. Once you've seen one, you've seen them all in the sense that you know you're going to enjoy them all. This shows, as does Stigma, the breadth that was possible within. 
yes. uh, this man's work. He can handle a gothic and yeah. handle a gothic beautifully. He can also handle a straight up horror, which is the, yeah. you know, this has more in common with Hammer than yeah, yeah. than many other things. And it's it's really successful. It's got a horrible, horrible scare at the heart of it. This is this is visceral. You know, this is children who've had organs removed. I mean, it, it couldn't be bleaker. It's this. amazing for for a story that shares its basic plot with the status quo film Bula Quo <laughs> about organ harvesting. It's remarkably which, scary. Uh, we've both seen in your house. <laughs> <laughs> so I've we never know recovered from that. Yeah, right. exactly. If you want a proper Halloween scare? If Bula you want Quo. horror, yeah, <laughs> with status quo in it. What we do? We'll probably take a little break now because we've got so many of these to discuss. We'll probably yes. do two parts of this, uh, and we'll come back and hear us again uh, in the next episode, where we're going to talk about the rest of Lawrence Gordon Clark's fantastic spooky oeuvre. Comfort Blanket was presented and produced by Joel Morris for the Cheese and Pickle family of podcasts. Find us on social media, and don't forget to like and subscribe.